This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Back a few decades, our next guest wrote a book titled In Search of Excellence. It came at a time when the unemployment rate was above 10%, and the mood in the country from an economic perspective was not that great. Fast forward, and our guest, Tom Peters, is back with the next incarnation of his work and his theme surrounding excellence titled The Excellence Dividend, Meeting the Tech Tide with Work That Wows and Jobs That Last. And it's a pleasure to have Tom Peters joining us on the show to discuss his book. Tom, great to have you with us today. Hey, thanks, Dan. Thank you. I, am, uh, I, I know this is totally inappropriate, but I have read your CV, and I cannot believe I'm speaking to someone who has announced 2,900 <laughs> baseball games. Well, that, yeah, there, there was... I mean, honest to God, I yeah. don't think there could be a more extraordinary job or one that I cannot imagine doing, and particularly the radio. Well, it, you know, we're doing it in radio is, is such a challenge, but uh, it's a pleasure to talk to you about this because, because I, I find it interesting because when, when you think about business today, every business seems to want to find excellence. Every worker, it seems like, wants to find excellence. But in this day and age, with all the tech and the AI that's coming in, it feels like, and you write about it, the fact that that the search for excellence is kind of shifting even these days. Well, first of all, I completely acknowledge and support maximum investment in technology. I am in no way, shape, or form against that. Um, my bias is, and I don't know what happens 30 years from now, but you know, let's step back a half a step. Incredibly smart people are saying that AI will take over as many as 50% of our jobs, including the lawyers and the docs, within the next 10 to 20 years. There are people who have equally high IQs who are saying it's more like 25 to 35 or 40 years. So smart people have wildly varying estimates of what's going on. On the flip side of that, though, my bias is especially for, say, anybody under the age of 40 who has a quarter of a century in the workforce left to go, that if you are not preparing yourself for a very different world and not doing that today, you're nuts. The second half of the story, which you've touched on, uh, is that, I mean, I'll go back to my silly comment, not silly, but my fascinating comment about baseball there are fabulous baseball announcers. I grew up in Baltimore. We had a guy by the name of Ernie Harwell who I was in love with. Yep. And obviously, just like chefs or gardeners or physicists, there are ones who are not so great. I believe that the human – I mean, what you did as an announcer is to engage your audience. Yep. I mean, you didn't tell them about a baseball game. Yep. You know, a computer could tell them about a baseball game. I, AI could tell them about a baseball game. But you engaged them. You made them. You made my mother-in-law, who listened to the Boston Red Sox on the radio every inning for 25 years, feel that she was part of the thing. Right. And and I think you know I had a bad experience in a retail store last week. Uh, I wanted to buy books. I had an armful of books with me, uh, and the checkout lines were insanely high. And I didn't lose my cool, which I would have 15 years ago. But I said, come on. You guys are under total threat by Amazon. Sure. I love coming into a bookstore and finding things that I didn't expect to get. 
But your only possibility of differentiating yourself is to have short lines, clerks that smile, clerks that are excited to take me back to the American history section and show me something cool that came in. I think with that kind of setting, I can differentiate a bookstore for the next 10 to 15 to 20 years. I think if I'm just going for efficiency and I'm fighting with Amazon and my lines are 27 people long at a not Christmas time, then I'm a cooked goose. So how how important are are the people going to be for businesses, whether they are the employees or the customers, how important are they going to be moving forward? I mean, they are important pretty much every day to begin with. But, it, it, you know, again, playing off of something you just said, I mean, there's this belief that we are going to have technology taking over and running so much uh, of, of what our businesses are. It makes you wonder what the role of the person is going to be and how important that role will be moving well, forward. I would, I would repeat myself to one extent. I don't know. Well, yeah. it's 2020. I don't know what the answer is in 2050. But whether you're my age, your age, or somebody 25, we have to get from now to then. And the world is not going to turn upside down in the next 10 years. And for a human being, a decade-long block is pretty significant. And so how are we going to differentiate ourselves? But my bias and what I'm running around in this book publicity stuff, yelling and screaming at the top of my lungs, is people are ten times more important because the way they will stay in business is to intimately differentiate their product or service, whether it be a radio broadcast of a baseball game, whether it be an in-flight experience, hmm. and I had a wonderful one a few weeks ago, or what have you. So my answer is far more important than ever, comma, if they are well-trained, if they are well-led, yeah. if they are engaged in what they're doing. And, and l- let me talk about the training part of it for a second, because the, the training aspect, we've talked about it on this show in, in other interviews, is the fact that now it seems like the expectation is is that companies don't feel like they are willing to to give the time to actually do the training for somebody to prepare them for the job. They want them custom ready, ready to roll, be able to, you know, hit the ground running uh, and, and be able to take, you know, everything. That wasn't always necessarily the case, but I think to a degree part of it was when we had such a reliance on manufacturing that I think that was built into it a little bit. Well, I think an exceptional service employee can do at least as much or more as an exceptional manufacturing employee could do. So all I can say at some level relative to what you suggested is I could not be in greater disagreement. Okay. Uh, I think it is more important than ever to train people. I mean, uh, you know, if we go back to 2000, and this is not pure technology, if we go back to 2008, the financial crash comes, the number of people in the stores go way down. Uh, stupid companies like Circuit City fired all their best salespeople to get their average costs down. And yet uh, the container store, which was voted a few years ago as the number one company to work for in America, the container store doubled their training budget in the pits of the financial crisis because they said, look, 
even in the pits of the crisis, 70 percent of the number of people are going to come in that did in the past. And we want them to fall in love and we want to sell them twice as much. So that if you train them, they'll leave stuff is, you know, my 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 problem, Dan, is I was in the Navy four years. And when I hear a comment like that, I want to unload all the words that I learned as a sailor, <laughs> which are totally inappropriate. And I promise you, I won't do. Well, uh, you could technically yeah, you are on Sirius XM. You could technically if you wanted to. Well, but, I know technically, yeah. but yeah, right. I'm not uh, yeah. I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a little bit I'm a little bit over that. I've calmed down a little bit. Right. So, you know, my, you know, it, it's interesting that you say in another dimension. In the book, and I haven't done this in any of my 17 books before, in fact, I have a separate section on training, yeah. and I call training investment number one, and, and I believe it entirely. I mean, you know, the life of somebody working on radio, you did the engineering or you had an engineer, with it, it, it's, it's just differentiation is always possible. You will never talk me out of that uh, in a six-person organization or in a 60,000-person organization. One thing I do want to say, uh, and, you know, Wharton graduates tend to go to bigger companies just like Stanford where I went to, but the heart of the American, Japanese, British, Canadian, Sri Lankan economy is not the giant firms. It is the SMEs, the so-called yeah. small and middle-sized enterprises. Uh, and in this book, in fact, I dedicate the book, dedicated to a dozen people, uh, but I dedicate it in particular to about four people who are performing magic tricks in odd corners of the economy, and they are the SMEs, or the M part, the medium part of those organizations. And so... I would, if, if I'm part of the management guru set, and I despise the term, we have focused exclusively, which is not quite but almost fair, on the Fortune 500. Yeah. And the Fortune 500 domestically in the United States employs less than 10% of us. You talk in the book as well uh, about leadership. And I'm interested to see how you have seen from the first time you did a book in this area till now and potentially moving forward, how leadership has changed and being that, that great leader uh, will continue to develop. Uh, I would argue, and this is contrary and that mostly leadership has not changed. Okay. Uh, and I'm actually doing this even more strongly than in the book. Speed is a trap. Uh, if you, a broadcaster on the radio, a person running a small business, a salesperson at Oracle makes the sale and keeps the sale and makes the repeat sale based on relationships, relationships, relationships. And relationships take time. I completely yeah. acknowledge that new tech is coming every day, but in the leader sense, you know, years and years ago, I worked with a, uh, a high-end system salesperson at AT&T, and I still remember him saying to me, he said, Tom, the top salesmen pay no attention whatsoever to the shifting incentive schemes. Right. The top salesmen know that they make their money over time 
based on fabulous customer relationships, yep. and they invest in those relationships like maniacs. It may not pay off when there's a little tweak to the incentive system for the next quarter, but over the one-year, two-year, certainly five-year period of time, he says, you know, it is the winning hand. Uh, and I believe it's true with bosses and their employees. I believe it's true with vendors. I believe it's true with customers. It is the, the, the quality of the relationship is the, number, is the number one thing. And so, you know, if you read my, I, in my leadership chapter, it has a shockingly sophisticated title that would yeah. even be difficult for a Wharton or a Stanford graduate to grasp. Yeah. And the title of the chapter is Some Stuff. Yeah. And, you know, yeah. no vision, no transformation, <laughs> no disruption. It's just things you can do to be a better leader. And, you know, again, in the leadership section, as opposed to the final chapter, I single out listening as the yeah. single most significant trait that a leader can have. And I believe it. Well, you also talk about culture in the book. And, and, and I wanted to get your opinion on this because seemingly culture has become a, an incredibly important component. You know, maybe in the last decade or so, there's been much more emphasis put on the culture of you know what what is with inside the company you see more companies wanting to have teams come together to be able to to do projects and, and it's it's one of the things that we hear that HR departments are really focused on is when you're hiring somebody have the skills have the background have that you know the the great resume but also are you a fit for the company Ab absolutely uh, i you know it, it's it's it, it, it amuses me uh, because when we did the work for In Search of Excellence, I was working for McKinsey and Company. Right. And we started talking about culture in 1980, and the number of people who tried to get me fired for using words like that uh, are too <laughs> numerous to mention. Yeah. Fortunately, my co-author, Bob Waterman, he said at one point, he said, I spend 70% of my time protecting you from yourself. <laughs> uh, and, you know, there's some truth to that. But the culture word has has become a lot more front and center than it has been in the past. The only slight, I mean, there are two things I would say. Uh, number one, culture is not an HR issue. It's a CEO issue. Every minute, every day, forever and ever, amen. But yes, the, you know, I, I, I tell a little story, which, you know, goes back to your first question uh, about boarding a Southwest Airlines plane in uh, Albany, New York, for a flight down to BW to Washington, and uh, pilot coming late. Early, the prior flight had gotten in late. Incredible pressure to get off on time. The standard thing: half dozen wheelchairs, uh, you know, sitting at the front of the jetway. Pilot under pressure, nonetheless, stops, turns to the woman in the first wheelchair, and says. Would you mind if I took you down the jetway? Right. And this is those little things that stick. Sure. I have approximately 7,500 flight legs to my credit. It is the first time I have ever seen a pilot do that. Now, back to your original question in this section, why yeah. does it happen? It happens in part or to a significant degree uh, because the hiring criteria at Southwest Airlines as it uh, enumerated by former President Colleen Barrett, is she says we hire for listening, caring, 
smiling, saying thank you, and being warm. And then she yeah. goes on and says, and that holds for pilots and mechanics uh, as much as it holds for the people who are at the desk or the uh, flight attendants. So, yeah, it, it is that kind of a it is that kind of a culture fit that's that's terribly important. You know, it's funny you say that because in thinking back to all the flights that I have taken in my life, I have never seen anything involving a pilot except them walking down the concourse, going right to the gate, maybe saying a couple of words to the person that's at the gate, you know, the ticket taker, and then going on to the plane. They 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 never have any interaction with the people that that are getting ready to be on the flight. Yeah, which you know takes us back to our first question. Why not? Yeah. You know, Southwest Airlines is supposed to be a discount airline, et cetera, et cetera. Whenever I have an opportunity, I fly Southwest, and it's precisely for those kinds of. Yeah, I mean, you know, we should we should replay, you know, that paragraph that you uttered, and then take us back to the beginning. Yeah. that is a ridiculous state of affairs. Yeah, and it's so easy to fix. I mean, there's another person who uh, I quote in the book who runs a middle-sized pharmaceutical company, another place that's not sort of place that's not known for sweetness and light. Right. Uh, and he says, and this is completely consistent with what you were saying, he says, we only hire nice people. And he said, I, you know, and he said, I interview the smartest microbiologist or whatever it is in the world. Uh, I am dying to have his talent, her talent on my team. But he said, unless they are nice and decent people who can work with others, I won't hire them. Right. And he puts them through what he calls the gauntlet, where they have to have short interviews with 15 people, yeah. from the finance department to the receptionist to what have you. Any of the 15 people can blackball Mr. God with a microbiology degree. And, and you know, his one-liner, which isn't original, but which is powerful, yeah. is he says one rotten apple can spoil the cultural barrel. Do you think that because the example you gave of, of Southwest and some of the other things we, we hear and we see in, in, in society today, do you think then that the relationship between uh, employee and customer will improve in the years to come. I, I, I think it has to, but I'm wondering if, if, if you believe it, that, it, that it will. I, you know, I'm writing these books to help people, and so the answer to your question is obvious. You know, if they buy my book, it will. Right. However, <laughs> it's a Monday morning, so I think honesty is required on Mondays. Uh, I'm not holding my breath. Yeah, you know, I, I, gave a, I gave a talk on last Wednesday in Washington, D.C. on the book, and and I said when I started, I said, I really hope you buy the book, but I will give you a money-back guarantee that there's nothing new in it. Uh, you know, I'm still pissed off that people don't understand the sort of thing that you and I have just been talking about, which seems so obvious, uh, but apparently it's not. I mean, a great friend of mine is a publisher of Forbes, Rich Carlgard, wrote a book about two or three years ago. And it, and it was called the soft edge, mm -hmm. and he is a you know he is a man main man in Silicon Valley, and his argument was that these soft forces are the mid to long term differentiators. Right. And you know I I, I don't I don't want to go too far on this. Plus the fact that we don't have the entire day, 
But I think a culture of arrogance and true believer dumbship is what's getting uh, Facebook in trouble as you and I speak. We're talking with uh, Tom Peters, who is the author of the book, The Excellence Dividend, Meeting the Tech Tide with Work That Wows and Jobs That Last. Uh, you're listening to Knowledge Award here on Sirius XM 111 Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Uh, in, in the last couple of minutes that we have here, one of the chapters that, that you have in the book that I wanted to touch on uh, talks about added value. And I wanted to, I mean, part of it is, is stuff that we've already discussed, but in terms of the, the idea of, of added value, what's the most important thing that still isn't being done today? Well, you know, to give you a, a, a quick, you know, we don't have a whole lot of time. The last of the value added strategy says fabulous people, which you and I have been talking about. Yeah. One of the things which I think, well, two, two things, uh, very fast. There are two markets, the two largest markets on Earth, and again, this gets back to stupid stuff, which are underserved. One of them is women. Women buy virtually everything, 80% of consumer goods, over 50% of commercial goods, and most organizations still are at the level, particularly in the senior ranks, of 5%, 10%, 15% women, right. and that is stupid. And again, since we're hustling here, the other market, which is even bigger, I'm an old guy. I'm the one you should be focusing on. Right. What's the yeah. definition of a millennial? A human being who has no money. What is the <laughs> definition of old people? The people who have the money. You know, my throwaway line is my people, meaning old people, my people don't have the money. We have all the money. Right. And the amount of effort and attention that goes into uh, marketing and product development for the over 50s is pathetically low. You know, some people say it's because of the American way. We honor and love youth, and I think there's some truth to that. But, you know, the average marketing department, the average social media department, probably has an age of 28 and a half, yeah. you know, at the most 31 and a half, and arguably 28 and a half year old people are not the best people to develop marketing campaigns or products for people who are 50 or 60 years old. And I mean, we are a gold mine. Uh, you know, somebody wrote a, a wonderful one-liner, I think it was the former head of AARP, and he said, at age 50, you have 50% of your adult life yeah. still ahead of you. Yeah. And you didn't know your left foot from your right when you were 25, and given advances over the years, the odds are pretty high that you're going to be reasonably healthy at 75. So, you know, let's go after those 50 to 75-year-olds with, with something other than cruise lines who certainly do get it. And I will tell you, Tom, off of that note, if you haven't seen the movie The Intern with Robert De Niro, it's an exact example of what you just talked about. Tom, thank you very much for joining the show today. Greatly appreciate it. My, my pleasure, and what a wonderful way to go. Yeah, that De Niro show is fabulous. Thank you. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu.